The sermon text today is Revelation 12, verses 7 through 17. Uh, In fact, we will only focus upon uh, verses 7 through 12, but we will read 7 through 17 of of Revelation 12. Uh, But I would like to read from Job chapter 1, verses 1 through 12 uh, today uh, for the Old Testament reading. Job chapter 1, verses 1 through 12. Job, uh, the book of Job, obviously an Old Testament book written long before uh, the coming of Christ. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. His sons used to go out and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them. He would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Let's go now to Revelation chapter 12, verses 7 through 17. There we read, Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ has come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea. For the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured out water like a river from his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured out from his mouth. 
Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. So far, the reading of God's word, we do pray that the Lord would help us to understand his word and to put it to practice. I do need to remind you before we dive into this text that in Revelation 12 verses 1 through 6, John described for us a sign that he saw in heaven, and we discovered that the sign that he saw revealed something to us about the ancient and spiritual battle that rages in the invisible realm beyond our senses. This battle is very old, stretching all the way back to the time of the fall of man, and the battle is very real. Uh, Though we do not see it, we do see the effects of it. Uh, This spiritual battle manifests itself in the world today. Uh, The evil that we see in the world, the trials and tribulations that God's people face are visible manifestations of this ancient and cosmic conflict. In particular, Revelation 12, 1 through 6 revealed uh, that it is the dragon, the ancient serpent called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, who is the primary opponent of God, his people, and his Christ. This We considered last week, didn't we, brothers and sisters? Uh, The dragon is there in Revelation 12, 1 through 6, portrayed as a vicious opponent of God who, before the birth of Christ, pursued the people of God in an attempt to swallow up the Christ of God. And indeed, the history of redemption is filled with examples of this invisible battle manifesting itself in the world. Remember that Cain, for example, rose up and killed Abel, but God provided Seth Uh, The world was filled with wickedness before the flood, but God showed grace to Noah and to his family. Abraham and his seed were threatened continuously and in very many ways, particularly by the barrenness of Sarah, but God fulfilled his promise by sending forth Isaac, his son. Remember that Jacob's offspring were then swallowed up by Egypt and they were enslaved there in that place, but God sent Moses to redeem them. And when the people left Egypt, only to find themselves stuck between the sea and the army of Pharaoh, God divided the waters for them so that they might walk through on dry land. When Israel was threatened by hunger and thirst in the wilderness, God provided water from the rock and also manna from heaven so that they might eat and drink. God gave Israel victory over all of her enemies and brought her safely into the land that was promised to her. When false prophets and wicked people multiplied within Israel after she had the land, God kept a remnant for himself. And even when taken into captivity by the Babylonians, God was faithful to bring back some of them. And so things were until when the fullness of time had come, the Christ was born. And so these are visible manifestations of this ancient cosmic and spiritual conflict between God and the serpent and the serpent and God's people. The people of God are continually threatened and yet God preserves them. God preserves them. And Christ also was pursued by the dragon, wasn't he? When Jesus was born, Herod sought to kill him. He was also tempted by Satan in the wilderness to abandon his God-given mission. He was despised and rejected by men. In the end, he was crucified, and surely Satan thought that he had finally succeeded when the Christ was crucified. He thought, finally I have succeeded in swallowing up the seed of the woman that was promised so long ago. But, to use the language of Revelation 12.5, Christ was caught up to God and to his throne. 
Satan in that moment realized that he had not succeeded, but that he was defeated in a most full and final way. Because even when he thought he swallowed up the Christ by way of death, the Christ rose from the dead and ascended to his throne in heaven. It was finished in that moment. And then what did Satan do, according to Revelation 12, 1 through 6? Was he done then? Was he uh, just defeated to the point of total inactivity? No, instead, uh, Satan turned his attention to the woman once more and to her offspring, and he pursued her into the wilderness where she would be nourished by God for 1,260 days. In our passage today, the reference is to a time, times, and half a time. And so we see here that Revelation 12, 1 through 6, tells the whole story of redemption, but compresses it into six verses with special attention given to the battle that rages in the heavenly places between Satan and God, his people, and his Christ. Uh, Though this battle be first spiritual, it manifests itself on earth. Now, the rest of Revelation 12, which we are now turning our attention to, is focused again upon this same cosmic conflict, but it is considered from a different vantage point. In verses 7 through 11, we learn that Christ's victory on earth produced a victory in heaven. In in verse 12, we learn that Christ's victory in heaven produced trouble for those living upon the earth. And in verses 13 through 17, we will learn that God will keep those servants of His who live upon the earth. I I wish to only give attention to verses 7 through 12 this morning and to save verses 13 through 17 for next week for the sake of time. But first of all, brothers and sisters, notice that Christ's victory on earth produced a victory in heaven. Christ's victory on earth produced a victory in heaven. When I speak of Christ's victory on earth, I'm of course speaking of his life and death, followed by his resurrection from the dead and his ascension to his heavenly throne. We should recognize that the victory won on earth, Christ's death and burial, followed by his resurrection and ascension, produced a victory in the heavenly places. We are very accustomed to thinking of all that Christ accomplished for us in his death and resurrection. But our minds typically go to those aspects of our salvation that are intensely personal. Do you know what I mean by that? We talk often about the cross of Christ, the death of Christ, His burial, His resurrection. And we tend to focus upon, though, uh, how all of that has benefited us individually, right? For example, we speak often of how Christ took our sins upon Himself when He died on the cross, He paid the penalty for your sins and mine and for the sins of all who ever have or will believe upon Christ. And we speak often of how Christ took upon himself God's wrath in our place. He shielded us from it. The justice of God demanded that sin be judged, but Christ took the judgment of God upon himself, standing in the place of all who ever have or ever will believe upon him. Indeed, it was this work, Christ's atoning work, and his work as a substitute for sinners that makes our salvation possible. We are now today, if we are in Christ, justified by God through faith in Christ because Christ has paid the penalty of our sins. We are adopted as sons because Christ has removed the enmity that once existed between us and God because of our sin. You were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, Ephesians 2.3 says. 
But then in Ephesians 1.5, we are reminded that we have been adopted as sons. And so this is all true. The victory that Christ won in his life, death, burial, and resurrection, and ascension to the right hand of the Father has brought us benefits that are intensely personal benefits. We are personally justified personally adopted, personally sanctified if we have faith in Christ. And there are many other personal benefits which in this life do accompany or flow from them, such as the assurance of God's love, peace of conscience, joy in the Holy Spirit, increase of grace and perseverance therein to the end. Baptist Catechism number 39 states this beautifully. But his victory accomplished on earth accomplished more than just these things. When Christ was raised up from the grave, when He ascended to this heavenly throne, a victory was also won in the heavenly realm, and this victory had cosmic consequences. This victory had cosmic consequences that go far beyond uh, your life and my life individually. I want you to notice that Christ's death, burial, and resurrection and ascension were very quickly but clearly summarized in 12.5, where we read, She, the woman, gave birth to a male child who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Who is the woman? Remember, she symbolizes the people of God in general, but comes to focus upon Mary, the mother of Jesus in particular. Who is the male child? Clearly, he is Jesus the Christ, for he is the one to rule the nations with a rod of iron. And what does it mean that the child was caught up to God and to his throne? In this one little phrase, we have summarized the whole process of Christ's exaltation, his resurrection and his ascension, Uh, his humiliation uh, is summarized in the word, she gave birth to a male child. His humiliation, that is the process whereby the eternal Son of God took on flesh. His humiliation is summarized in the words that uh, she gave birth to a male child. But his exaltation, his exaltation is summarized with the words, the child was caught up to God and to his throne. So Christ lived, he died. And with his death and burial was completed the process of his humiliation, Christ becoming low for us, Christ suffering for us, enduring all the the, the sufferings of this life. So there, his process of humiliation was finished. But when we read that the child was caught up to God and to his throne, we have in that one phrase a reference to the process of Christ's exaltation. From that grave, Christ rose. And having been risen, he also ascended to to God's right hand, being seated on his throne, the throne that was promised to him in ages past. Christ died, but he rose from the grave. Forty days later, he ascended and was seated at the Father's right hand. That process of exaltation is what the phrase, the child was caught up to God and to his throne, refers to. So with that victorious event in mind, the event of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection and ascension. We are then prepared to read on. And it's in verse 7 where we see that Christ's earthly victory, His humiliation followed by His exaltation, had within the heavenly realm a great impact. We read, Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, 
And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. Do you see the connection here, brothers and sisters, that Christ's victory won on earth? has produced a great victory, not just on earth, but in, in the heavenly places. In the heavenly places. The heavenly battle described here is between Michael and his angels and the dragon and his angels. In other words, the battle is between the elect angels with Michael leading and the fallen angels with Satan leading. This is a, a cosmic and heavenly battle, isn't it, that we are seeing here? Uh, You've heard of Satan, no doubt, but perhaps you've not heard of Michael. Uh, He is referred to in Daniel 10 as one of the chief princes of God's angels. He is mentioned again in Daniel 12 as the great prince who has charge of God's people. In Jude chapter 9, he is referred to as the archangel. And so I simply want you to notice this before we go further. The scriptures are clear that there exists a spiritual world that corresponds to the physical one in which you and I live. There is a heavenly world a spiritual world, and there is clearly a battle that rages there. Notice that we are told the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. It seems as if Michael then and the elect angels initiated, that is the sense that I get, that something provoked them to say, now is the time to take care of this issue we have and to finally defeat Uh, the dragon and his angels in this way. We are told that Satan was then thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him, Revelation 12, 9. The end result was that Satan and his angels were barred from heaven. They were not allowed to come into the heavenly realm, but were now confined to the earth. The question that we must must ask is this, when did this battle and the barring of Satan from heaven take place. When did this all happen? Some might assume that what we have here is a description of the fall of Satan and his demons, which took place sometime before the fall of man. And I can understand why your mind would would go there. It it seems as if that's the kind of thing that is being uh, talked about, you know, the, the fall of Satan and the casting out of Satan from heaven. A quick read of the passage might conjure up thoughts of the original fall of Satan, but when you look closely at it, you realize this cannot be the case. This is not what is described here, as we will see. Others think that this battle has not yet happened, but will happen in the future, immediately before the so-called Great Tribulation. Uh, But here I will simply say that this is an unbiblical system of doctrine and faulty methods of interpretation that produce this view and not a careful consideration of this text. The correct answer is that this battle... And the barring of Satan from heaven took place when Christ rose from the dead, ascended to his heavenly throne, and was seated there. That is when this heavenly battle took place. That is when Satan was barred from heaven. Christ's victory on earth produced a victory in heaven. I want you to notice three things that prove that this is the proper interpretation 
Uh, First of all, notice that verses 1 through 6 and 7 through 12 are tightly linked to one another. What it was described in verses 1 through 6 is tightly linked to what happens now in verses 7 through 12. The first section concludes with the words, Her child was caught up to God and to his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. And then verse 7 begins with the word, Now, now, War arose in heaven. It is clear that the victorious event described in 12.5, namely the ascension of Christ to his throne, is the event which prompted the victory over Satan in the heavenly realm, which is described in 12.7-9. That is the natural reading of the text. The two things are clearly connected. There was a victory won. Somebody was enthroned, namely Jesus the Christ. He sat down on his throne where? On earth? No, in the heavenly places, and the end result is that Satan was then barred from heaven, being confined to the earth. The earthly victory produced a heavenly victory. Secondly, notice that the heavenly voice that is described to us in verses 10 through 11 specifically says that the victory won in heaven is owed to Christ's victory on the earth. Look at verse 10 with me. John says, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives, even unto death. Let me ask you this simple question. When was salvation earned? At Christ's first coming in His death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. That is when our salvation was earned. And when did the kingdom of God arrive in power? It came in power at Christ's first coming through His life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. This is why John the Baptist prepared the way for the Christ, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, Matthew 3, 2. And Jesus Himself said, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel, Mark 1, 5. In Matthew 12, 28, Jesus explicitly said that His ability to cast out demons, as He did time and time again, by the Spirit, was proof that the kingdom had come upon them, Matthew 1228. And so when did the kingdom come in power? When did the kingdom of God arrive in power? It arrived at Christ's first coming. It arrived at his first coming. And when was Christ given all authority? Here is another question that should be answered simply. He was given all authority at his first coming through his life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. You remember the Great Commission, don't you? We love to quote the Great Commission. And it is good that we do quote it. It reminds us of our task here on earth. But what was, the, what was said at the very beginning of it? What was the motivation for accomplishing this great commission of making disciples of all nations and teaching them and baptizing them? What was the motivation for it? Christ stood before his disciples after his resurrection and said, All authority where? In heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. When did Christ receive all authority in heaven and on earth. It was at His first coming upon His resurrection from the dead, and then He ascended to sit down on His heavenly throne of authority. The voice that John heard in heaven connected the salvation earned by Christ, the arrival of God's kingdom and power and the authority given to Christ with the accuser being thrown down. The two things are intimately connected because all of this has happened. Because all of this has happened in Christ's first coming, 
Now all of a sudden, this victory has been won in heaven where the accuser of the brethren has been barred from heaven and confined uh, to the earth. Thirdly, we should also pay attention to what the rest of the scripture what the rest of the scriptures have to say about the subject of the barring of Satan. Uh, You would do well to notice that prior to the resurrection of Christ, prior to the resurrection of Christ, Satan did indeed have the ability to stand before God and to accuse the people of God. He had that ability. You might have thought that he lost it right when he fell, but evidently that is not the case. He had the ability to come before God God Almighty, to stand before the throne and to accuse God's chosen people. I read from Job 1 at the beginning of the sermon to demonstrate this fact. Job 1.6, Now there came a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. Where did he come from? He came from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. So evidently, prior to the coming of Christ, and clearly after the fall, Satan had access both to the earth, he was able to walk up and down on it and to have an effect upon it, but also he was allowed, at least from time to time, to come before the throne and to accuse. I would even argue that he was able to do that continuously because that's what Revelation chapter 12 says. He was able to accuse the brothers constantly. And what did Satan do once he stood before God in Job chapter 1? Well, he accused Job, saying, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. In other words, the only reason Job worships you, God, is because you've blessed him so much. You know, take away his health, take away his possessions, remove, remove his family from him, and certainly he will have a change of heart. He will then curse you. What is Satan doing then? He's accusing Job, isn't he? He's standing before God and he's bringing accusations before God concerning Job. The same phenomenon could be seen in Zechariah 3, where we read, Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. So Zechariah sees a vision where Joshua, the high priest, is there standing before the Lord. And what is Satan doing? Satan is there too, and Satan is bringing accusations against Joshua, the high priest. This man is not worthy to be yours. This man is filthy. This man is sinful. How could you possibly receive him? As yours, how could he possibly serve you, especially in this way? Satan is bringing accusations against Joshua, the high priest. And remember how Jesus, what Jesus revealed to Peter uh, when he told Peter that he would deny him three times. Uh, he actually revealed to Peter, saying, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. When did this happen? Before or after the crucifixion of Christ? Before it. Before Christ died and rose again. And what do we see here except an indication that Satan is still standing before the throne of God, bringing accusation against God's people. Peter, give him to me. He's not worthy. I'll sift him as wheat. I'll show you that his faith is not authentic or true. You know, it's accusations being brought against Peter here that stands behind that whole episode. So prior to Christ's resurrection and ascension, this was the case. Satan did come before the Lord 
to accuse the people of God, he would stand before the Lord and say, this one is unworthy, this one is unclean, this one really deserves your condemnation. And why would it be that Satan would be able to do such a thing? Have you thought of that? Why is this allowed? Is it not because salvation had not yet been accomplished by Christ? And so, from Satan's limited perspective, he is not omniscient, you know. He is a creature of God and not the creator. He cannot see the future. None of the angels can, not even the elect angels. So, from his limited perspective, the people of God were being accepted as righteous before God, but for no good reason prior to the coming of Christ. Do you see it? And so God has his elect under the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant. Here they are being received as righteous before God. But from Satan's limited perspective, there's no reason for God to receive them as righteous. From his vantage point, they are indeed still in their sin, still filthy, still worthy of condemnation. But yet God says, this one is mine. Satan says, this one should not be yours because of their sinfulness. And so Satan is there acting as an accuser continuously before God, saying this one uh, cannot be clean. But from God's perspective, even under the Old Covenant, what is the case? Joshua, the high priest, was clean, not because of his own righteousness, but because of the righteousness of Christ, who would come at just the right time, imputed to him by faith. That is God's perspective on it. Christ was crucified before the foundations of the world. It was as good as done. And that work of Christ that would not be accomplished until the appointed time was acting retroactively, being extended back to all who had faith in Christ prior to His coming. Abraham being one example of this that the New Testament makes explicit. God saw these as clean. The finished work of Christ, though it had not yet been accomplished, was applied to them ahead of time. And so it went on uh, throughout all of the Old Covenant. Satan stood before God, accusing the people of God day and night, not understanding how it could be that a righteous and holy God could receive sinners like Job and Joshua and Peter as holy in his sight. But then Christ came. Then Christ came. And Satan saw it, didn't he? In fact, he knew the significance of it and pursued Christ from his birth and nagged him, and pestered him, and assaulted him until the very end, until his death. The Christ came, he lived, he died for the sins of his people. He rose and ascended, it is finished. Salvation now was accomplished, and Satan saw it and knew it then. Even his finite creatures, Satan and his fallen angels included, saw that salvation had been accomplished by Jesus the Christ, who is the eternal Son of God come in the flesh through the sufferings of the cross, his death and resurrection. And now that he is ascended and seated in the heavenly places with all authority in heaven on earth being given to him, there is no longer room for Satan to accuse because it has been accomplished. What is he going to say now? What is he going to say if he were allowed before the throne of God? What would he say? The question has already been answered. What about this one? The question's been answered, Satan. The sins of this one have been paid for. The righteousness of Christ is imputed to them. Do you see it now, Satan? There's no conversation to be had. So Satan is barred from heaven now. 
I want you to listen to Paul's words in Romans 8, 31 through 34. They should be familiar to you, but I want you to think of them in this context, with this theme in mind. Paul asks, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? What is the implied answer? If God is for us, who can be against us? No one at all. No one at all, ultimately. Of course, we have an enemy, but our enemy is nothing uh, because of God's victory and His being for us. He continues by asking, He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? The implied answer is yes. If God has loved us to the point of sending His Son to die for us, certainly He will graciously give us all things. And then He asks, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? The word charge means to bring accusations against someone, usually in the court of law. Who will dare to accuse God's elect is the question. And what is the implied answer? No one can bring an accusation against God's elect. And why is that, Paul? Why can no one bring an accusation against God's elect? It it seems to me that actually I, I am liable to accusation. It seems to me that if, if, if Satan were to observe my life, which he can, he probably would have quite a few things to say. What about this one? How could it be that you would receive this one, God? But Paul asks the question, who could bring any charge against God's elect? What does Paul say? For it is God who justifies, who is to condemn. And then Paul presents the basis for it all, saying, Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was Raised, and where is he now, brothers and sisters, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us? He is indeed interceding for us. Why is it that no one can bring any charge against God's elect? Because we have been justified through faith in Christ Jesus, and our Lord is risen, and he has ascended, and he is seated in the heavenly places. Satan has been barred, so that he cannot do that work that he once did. So why is it, brothers and sisters, that we are able to speak in such a bold way as Christians asking if God is for us, who can be against us, and who shall bring any charge against God's elect, and who is to condemn? It is because Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. That is the reason why we can speak with such boldness. It is not because of our righteousness, you know. It is not because of our righteousness, but because of Christ's finished work. His victory accomplished on earth has produced in heaven a victory so that we might say with confidence, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why? Because Christ has accomplished our salvation. He is seated at the Father's right hand. It is finished. And so when Christ rose from the dead, ascended and was seated in power, He did more than pay for your sins. He did that, but He did more than that. He also won a cosmic victory in the spiritual realm so that Satan and his angels were defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. This is fantastic, isn't it? To know that our accuser has been thrown down. He has been barred from heaven and accuses no longer. Secondly, and very briefly, 
Notice that Christ's victory in heaven produced trouble for those living upon the earth. Satan was barred from heaven. Over this fact, the angels in heaven rejoiced. You heard their voice, didn't you? Uh, You heard the voice from heaven rejoicing about this fact. But being banished from heaven, where is Satan now confined to Rome? Verse 9 says, And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. In verse 12, the heavenly voice says, Therefore rejoice, O heavens, this is good news, in the heavenly realm, and you who dwell in them, by the way, you are seated there with Christ Jesus now, if you are in him. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. In the days of Job, Satan roamed the earth, but he also had access to God that he might accuse Now that Christ has accomplished salvation, Satan is confined to Rome on the earth and is barred from heaven. And now we are told he is particularly furious. And why is he so furious? It is because he knows that his time is short. His days are numbered. The victory has been won by Christ. Satan has been mortally wounded. He has taken that great and decisive blow to the head of which God spoke of shortly after the fall. So what can he do now except continue to bite at the heel of the woman on to the very end? That is all he can do. And he is doing that in a most vicious way because he knows that his time is short. It is true that the Bible teaches That because of the victory won by Christ, Satan has been barred from heaven. No longer does he have access to God to accuse the elect before him. And it is true that the Bible teaches that because of the victory won by Christ, Satan is bound now. He is bound so that he can no longer deceive the nations. Revelation 20. He is bound so that his house, that is the world, might be plundered by Christ. Matthew 12, 29. He is, in other words, bound so that the great commission of Matthew 28, 18 through 20 will be accomplished. But it would be foolish for us to live as if Satan is no more. Having been barred from heaven, we must understand that he is now confined to the earth where he prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. 1 Peter 5.8. Barred from heaven? Yes. Bound on earth? Yes. Bound so as to not keep the nations in darkness any longer, so that the Great Commission might be accomplished. But active still? Yes. And particularly ferocious, because he knows that his time is short. The rest of Revelation, especially up through chapter 19 and on into chapter 20, will make it clear that he devours through the threat of persecution, through false teaching, and the seductiveness of the world. He is active. He is very active. But he is defeated, barred, and bound. Active still, though, and we must beware of him. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to you, O earth and sea. For the devil has come down to you, in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. Let us take just a moment to apply this text before we conclude, so that we be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving ourselves, James 1.22. Of course, this text can be applied in very many ways. 
I do hope that you just simply reflect upon the teaching of Scripture and apply this text thoroughly to your life. But I do have three suggestions for application. Uh, One, I do wish to encourage us to cultivate thankful hearts concerning all the benefits that we have in Christ Jesus. I, I wish to emphasize this. We need to recognize how very rich we are in Christ Jesus. We need to learn to think deeply about the richness that we have in Christ Jesus. Our Savior has won for us a cosmic battle. He has triumphed over all His and our enemies. God has disarmed the rulers and authorities and has put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. This Though it is more than just an individual benefit to us, it certainly affects us. Satan does not stand accusing you because of the finished work of Christ on the cross. And our Savior has taken away our sin. He has forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross, Colossians 2, 13-14. Our Savior has given us new life. We were dead in our trespasses and the uncircumcision of our flesh, but He has made us alive together uh, with Christ. So we are rich in Christ, are we not? I'm rattling these things off as theological, doctrinal fact. But have you stopped to think about this? The benefits that you have in Christ Jesus, the richness of His grace, all that you have in Him. You are justified by Him if you have faith in Him. You have been accepted and adopted as sons. We are being sanctified day by day. And the point is this, we ought to be very thankful. And our thankfulness should be constant for these things do not fade away. I could add to this the mention of all the temporal blessings we enjoy in this world. We have food to eat. We have water to drink. We have clothes to wear. We're sheltered. Indeed, by the grace of God, we have these things regularly, and we have them in abundance. And indeed, by the grace of God, we have much more than this. We have friends and family. We have one another in Christ Jesus. We should be very thankful in this life. Indeed, Paul was right to write to Timothy, saying, Godliness with contentment is great gain. And yet so often we are found moping around like ungrateful children in this world. And how wrong it is for us to sin against God in this way. How wrong it is for us to sin against God in this way, to go around in this world moping around like ungrateful children, as if we are not rich in Christ Jesus, as if if we are not heirs of all of these uh, heavenly blessings and earthly blessings too. Instead, We should wake up each morning with thankful hearts, to eat and drink with thankful hearts, and to go to sleep with thankful hearts. The disposition of of the Christian should be one of constant thankfulness, even if everything is falling apart around us in this world. These things cannot be taken from us. We have these heavenly blessings stored up for us in heaven, and Christ has promised to meet the daily needs of His people. We should be thankful. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be made known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Philippians 4.4-7 We should think more deeply about all that we have in Christ Jesus, and we should give God thanks always 
for things big and small. Two, I must warn you again to be sober-minded and watchful concerning your adversary, the devil, who prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. This point will be made again and again as we progress through the pages of Revelation, but with ever greater detail and precision. We will be reminded over and over again that Satan has been thrown down to the earth and that he has come down in great wrath because he knows that his time is short, but we will also be reminded that he is cunning in his ways. He is indeed fierce like a lion, but he is deceptive like a serpent, isn't he? And we have to be aware of his deception. We have to be aware of the fact that he is cunning, he is sly, he brings his attacks upon the people of God in ways that you might not expect or you might not see right away. But we will see them if we are aware of them, if we are well prepared. I was in the backyard uh, with my son David a few weeks ago doing some yard work when out of the corner of my eye I saw a large rattlesnake slithering along. I mean, that just makes your skin crawl even to think of it, right? And, uh, and so I walked towards it because I had to be a brave dad in that moment, of course, and not a scaredy cat, right? So I walked towards it, and what it did it is, it, is it moved up into our really large, overgrown uh, tomato plant. This thing's producing a ton of tomatoes. And it, it slithered into there, and I quickly lost sight of it. I'm looking around trying to see where it was. Uh, needless to say, I didn't pick any tomatoes for a few days. I'm sure it did go away. Now, the point I am making, though, is that serpents are very sly. They're quiet. I didn't hear it at all. I just caught it out of the corner of my eye. And once I saw it, I walked up to it. But in a moment, it was gone. I could not see it. If it was coiled up there in that tomato plant, I could not see it there. It was so well camouflaged. And if it snuck out the back way and disappeared, it did so very quickly. Uh, That is how our evil one, the, the evil one is. That is how our enemy is. He is sly, like a roaring lion, yes, but he does not present himself as such. Instead, he comes to us like a serpent in such a cunning way. And the people of God must beware lest we be caught by surprise. He comes against us, not roaring like a lion, though he is fierce like a lion, but he comes against us like a serpent. He strikes when we least expect it. He hides behind the powers of this world, false teachings that, are, that at first tickle the ears and the seductiveness of this world too. And so we are to be sober-minded and watchful concerning him. Lastly, the last point of application is this. I cannot close without urging you to trust in Jesus. Indeed, he is our champion. He is our king who has defeated all that threatens us. He is the mediator between God and man. There is no other. Only he can, could, and has accomplished this work. He has paid for our sins. He has defeated all of his and our enemies, and he has done so in such a decisive manner that there no longer remains a place for Satan in heaven, even to accuse. And so we are to believe upon Christ. We are to find ourselves shielded by him. He is to be our Lord and King. He is to be our great high priest. He is to be our prophet. We are to look to him and to him alone for our salvation. And once we have believed upon him, we are to cling to him. We are to cling to him always, for he is our rock. Let us bow together for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, We are thankful for all that you have given us in Christ Jesus. We are rich. You have given us all that we need in the spiritual realm. You promise to provide all that we need even in the physical realm. 
Why? Because you have made us your children and you will care for your children. Lord, make us more aware of the truth of this matter, that we would trust in you. Lord, give us thankful hearts. Give us contentment. Lord, I do pray for your people that we together would walk around with very joyous and thankful dispositions always, uh, rejoicing in all that we have in Christ Jesus. Help us in this, Lord, to see with eyes of faith. Sometimes, Lord, you know our weakness. The world looks otherwise. Our circumstances point us in different directions. But Lord, help us to see with eyes of faith and to walk by faith and not by sight in this world. Lord, do it for our good, but do it ultimately for your glory. These things we pray in Christ's name. Amen.